Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6 as we continue our study through the book of Joshua. We find ourselves this morning in one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. There are very few stories more familiar than this one. Certainly when I said a few months ago that we were going to begin talking about the book of Joshua, this is the one episode that will have come to your mind. When it comes to things like Daniel and the lion's den or Noah and the ark and Jonah and the big fish, certainly Joshua and the battle of Jericho is right here with those stories. Now, I don't know why it is that so many people know this story, believers and unbelievers alike. It, it might be from the song. Many people asked me this morning if we were singing the song. The answer is no, not that I know of. I don't think we're singing the song. But you know Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. It was originally an African-American spiritual from the 1860s, but you and I know it because it was most made famous and sung the best in 1960 by Elvis Presley in his album, His Hand in Mine. Yes, you're right, the first of his three gospel full-length albums that he made, uh, and this was one of the uh, best tracks in all of this album. Uh, went to number 16 on the pop charts as a spiritual album. You don't want to get me started, but it's, it was really, really good stuff. Now, you you may know the lyrics of the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But you may, may not know how the song continues. It says, yes, God knows Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. God knows Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You may talk about your men of Gideon. You may brag about your men of Saul. But there's none like good old Joshua at the battle of Jericho. Up to the walls of Jericho, he marched with spear in his hand. Go blow them ram's horns, Joshua cried, cause the battle is in my hands. You know, that's, that's how it ends. That's just a teaser for the invitation at the end of the song. Thank you very much. Now, the thing we love about that song is it's good for us to be reminded of the heroes of the Bible. Our children need to be reminded, particularly in the days in which we live, of what it's like to be a faithful man and woman. And really, the Bible is, is just a, a book of biographies, reminding us and showing us how real people walk with Jesus. And Joshua is seen in that song as a great leader and a great warrior, a man of great courage, and all of that is good and right. There's only one problem, kind of a small problem with that song, and that is simply that Joshua did not fit the battle of Jericho. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. The point of the entire story is not that Joshua is the hero of the story. No, the whole point of the story wants us to see that Joshua is actually not the one that fought that battle. Now, I'm not trying to over-evaluate or overthink our children's songs. If we go down that path, we could be here a long time. But it matters for us, doesn't it? It matters because the meaning of the text matters. And it matters because we sing these songs in order to get deep theological truth into our children. It matters because the story matters for us today. That we do believe that that story is a model for us and God intends for it to be there for our instruction and our encouragement. God wants us to learn something from that story. And the point of the story is not calling us to greater bravery. It's calling us to greater faith. The story is not about Joshua's courage. It's not about our courage. It's about God's ability 
to do something beyond anything we could ever accomplish in our wildest dreams or imagination. It is about seeing what God can do when his people walk by faith. So I want to look at this familiar story this morning, try to walk through the narrative a little bit and understand the point that is being made and then transition to seeing why it matters so much for us today in the life in which God has called us to live as we choose by faith to follow Jesus. It begins in verse 1 by painting a picture for us, and we've talked a lot about how all the biblical narrative, particularly the book of Joshua, gives us all of these details in order to put a picture in our mind of the story and what's really happening. So this certainly begins in verse 1 where it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, it wants us to get a picture there of a fortified city, but not just a fortified city, a fortified city with all of his defenses up. A fortified city in complete lockdown where no one could get in and no one could get out. This impenetrable fortress. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about Jericho, but do you know that Jericho as a city only took up about six acres? This is a really small city. About six acres. This, this is one of the smallest cities that they would take as they continued into the land of Canaan, but it's the first one they had to take in order to move any further. But the fact that it was so small explains why it was so fortified. Because a city that small would have been easy to conquer unless they had done everything they could to make sure that their people were protected. And that's exactly what they did. It was created to be a fortress that even larger armors and larger cities could not take down. Now, get in your mind what the city looked like. First of all, around the outer ring of the city was a wall that was about six feet wide. And it went all the way around the city. Now, after that wall, there was like a grassy plain that went around. So you imagine a wall and then a grassy plain all the way around. And then another wall that was 12 feet deep. So a wall, a grassy area all the way around. And then another wall twice as thick as the first wall. They totaled about 46 feet in height, so about four, four and a half stories high was how high the walls went. Now, the genius of this was that if you got through the first wall, there was a lot of time there in order for you to get rid of the second wall. So if they didn't kill you before the first wall and you made it to the first wall, they were certainly going to get you before you got to the second wall. So all of this is intended specifically for a war to make sure that they could not be destroyed. And this is what they're looking at as they stand outside and look at the walls of Jericho. Now, remember, Israel has never engaged in a battle like this. You know that this is a new generation, and there's only two men, Joshua and Caleb, who have ever fought in a war before. And they're in their mid to late 60s. They're the only men that have any experience in this whatsoever. They have some mighty men who have been trained in the wilderness, but they have no experience. They don't really have an official army. There's no real training there's only two men that have ever done this. And so here they are standing. And then I love what the Lord says in verse 2. I have to believe this was intended to be a little bit comical. I don't know. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and mighty men of valor. So here they are standing, this impenetrable fortress. And the Lord says, Look, just like I told you, see, I've given this into your hands. It looked impossible for them to be ever to be able to take this down whatsoever. 
But it's true. God had been reminding them generations ago that he was going to give them this land. We began in chapter 1 with two reminders. I am going to give you this land. It belongs to you. It's past tense. It's already yours. You simply must go take what has already been given to you. God has given them the land. They have to fight for it, but God has given it to them. He has ensured their victory. Now, there are about five ways to take a walled city. This is not hard to think about. Five ways to take a walled city. You can go over the walls. Now, that was going to be hard in Jericho because, like I said, when you go over one, you still have another one you're not going to make. You could go under the walls. That's also difficult because it's going to take so much time because of the length of the walls and how much space is there. You could go through the walls, also going to be quite difficult. You could surround the city and starve them out, which would work eventually. They're shut up uh, and shut out, and so no one can get in or out. Nothing can go out. I, I would imagine that would take four, five, six months. I don't know how long it would take for them to take up all of their food, and then you just wait for them to starve. Or you could do some kind of trickery, like a Trojan horse, where you hide someone in something and allow them to bring it in, and then you take them that way. But those were the really only five ways you could take a walled city. God chose none of those. God explains his plan in verse 3. Look at it with us. The Lord says this. He says, now now here's how we're going to do this. You're going to march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. And you're going to do this for six days. And then seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, When you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people are going to shout with a great shout. The walls of the city are going to fall down flat, and then you're going to go in straight before them. Now, in some ways, this makes sense. I mean, if you're choosing teams for a battle, you're you're obviously going to get people with trumpets, right? I mean, first of all, let's get the orchestra. We've got to make sure they go into battle with us. Then next, you're obviously going to get preachers. I mean, that's obvious. If you're picking right now who you want to go to battle with you, Certainly Doug and me are going to be in there. You have to know that that's, these are like no-brainers, okay? So this isn't super crazy. Okay, what do we need for a war? Trumpet players, number one. Number two, some preachers. So, so this is the plan the Lord gives them. And for some reason, the Lord felt that the order of this was extremely important because four times in the chapter, the order is reiterated. The Lord says it, and then Joshua says it. He reminds them of this again. And it's going to go something like this. You're, you're going to get the armed men, And then you're going to get priests with trumpets, ram's horns. Then you're going to get another group of priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So they're not even able to fight because they're holding something. And then behind them, another group of armed men. And here's what you're going to do. All of you are going to walk around the city one time and never stop blowing trumpets. And then you're going to go home and you're going to rest. You're going to come back and do that again. And look at what Joshua does. He gives them more instruction when he goes on in verse 6. So Joshua called the son of Nun. And the priest, and said to them, so take the ark, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. Now go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Give some more details. He said, just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets with the ark of the covenant, the Lord following them. So there was never a time when they were walking around that they stopped blowing the trumpets. The entire time, the trumpets were blowing It says, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets. The rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. Now, this is interesting, verse 10. Joshua then commanded the people. 
You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Listen to this. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So while the armed men, the priests, the trumpets, and the ark are walking around one time a day blowing their trumpets, the rest of the congregation was not allowed to make a sound. It said there should not be one word coming out of your mouth. And when you get to think about it, you have to believe there's a little psychological warfare going on here. Because imagine what this was like being inside Jericho, hearing nothing but the sound of trumpets, with a million, a million and a half, two million people outside of the walls, completely silent. There's nothing else going on. So this eerie sound of trumpets continually, the whole time they're marching, and then no other sound. And that's exactly what they do. It says in verse 11, so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. They came to the camp, spent the night in the camp. So this is what they do. They go do it once, they come back, they sleep, and then they go again. It says in verse 12, Joshua rose early in the morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets horns. Before the ark of the Lord, they walked and they blew their trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. It keeps emphasizing this one sound that you're hearing over and over of the trumpets blasting. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did for six days. You know, I love the little, little subtle details. It tells us in verse 12 that Joshua rose early in the morning. It tells us again in verse 15, on the seventh day they rose early in the morning. It's the same thing it tells us the day in which they were gonna cross the Jordan in chapter three, verse one. Joshua rose early in the morning. The emphasis of that statement is on this, is Joshua doesn't think this is weird. Joshua is not surprised by this. He doesn't question this. He doesn't ask any questions. He's excited to get up. He's ready for the day. He's believing in God. He's not only trusting what God said he's going to do, he trusts the way in which God said he's going to do it. I think we often trust what God's gonna do. We just don't trust his method of getting it done. We have our own method of how we want it to be done. But Joshua didn't debate this. He didn't question this. He just believed that this is what was going to happen. He's ready. He's excited. He's all in. No questions. And then it comes in verse 15 to the seventh day. On the seventh day, they rose early on the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. Verse 16, it says that the seventh day, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then Joshua gives them some instruction of what's gonna happen when they go in. He says this, the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she had the mess, hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourself from the things, things devoted to destruction. What he's saying is you're gonna go in and see all of these great things and you're gonna think, I wanna bring that to my house and we'll talk about this more next week. But he says, don't do that. None of this is for you. If you see gold and silver, bring that into the household of the Lord and we will take that aside, but everything else is destroyed. Don't keep anything for yourselves. Verse 19, all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. And they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So verse 20 shows the moment. The people shouted. The trumpets were blown. I mean, just imagine uh, how loud it would have been. You've been to a University of Georgia football game or some athletic event like this when 100,000 people shout. Imagine at one moment all of the trumpets blowing and a million or a million and a half people at the very same time shouting. And at the moment they shout, the walls just don't come down. Archaeologists have even told us that it appears that the walls look like they were crushed from above, that they completely flattened. They didn't fall this way. They didn't fall that way. They were just crunched all the way to the ground. 
And all of that was in that moment, in that sound. It said, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the walls fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Now look what it says in verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now let me make a comment about that verse right there. I have made comments about this almost every week. And on Easter Sunday, I did an entire sermon on the Lord as a warrior and what that means and how we deal with this. But when you look at what actually happens in the city in this moment, it's kind of interesting this is a children's song. If you told the whole story, this would be a terrible children's song. You see, what do you do with a God who tells his people to march in and completely, utterly destroy everyone, men, women, boys and girls, and all of the animals that are there? Well, the answer is all throughout Scripture. Leviticus chapter 20 is the most important key to that, and you can go back and read that later, but in Leviticus 20, you don't need to turn there. Leviticus 20, the Lord tells the people of Israel about the people in Canaan. And he tells them about their wickedness and he tells them about their immorality. It goes step by step giving great details about how these people lived. It talks about how they sacrificed children and killed their children to sacrifice to appease their gods. They were involved in witchcraft and adultery and incest and homosexuality and bestiality and tons of other things. All listed in Leviticus 20. And all of these things are said to show the people the wickedness of these cities. Now listen. The truth is, time and time again, God has given this city an opportunity to repent. And if you read through chapters 1 through 5 before getting to chapter 6, you'll see that there were multiple moments in which God stopped the people while the people knew that the people of God were coming and gave them an opportunity to repent, but they never did. The only one who repented is Rahab, showing us that anyone who chose to trust and follow the Lord could have been saved. Rahab was saved. It emphasizes twice in chapter 6, Rahab the prostitute. In order for you to know, anyone can be saved as long as they choose to trust and follow the Lord. Rahab knew they were coming. She aligned herself with the people of God and she was saved. And everyone in the entire city could have done that. What this scripture points us to is this. There's a very real and dramatic judgment coming someday. And it is only the people of God who will be saved. And God is giving every person a moment so they are without excuse. You can trust and follow the Lord today. If you do not, there will be a coming judgment very similar to this one. And everyone who has continued to rebel against the Lord will be destroyed. That is the message of the gospel of Jesus. So at the same time, there's a picture of God as a warrior. There's an incredible picture of God as a savior because as it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is patient and he does not wish anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wanted them to come, but they refused. And over half of chapter six, listen, is given to the person of Rahab to show us the balance between the judgment and the mercy and grace of God. You cannot question that God was gracious and merciful, allowing everyone to respond. But if you choose to rebel against him, your outcome will be like the people of Jericho. This is exactly what happens. The people go in, they march, they save the family of Rahab and everything else was destroyed. Now, it's a fascinating story. 
The truth is, I've read so many commentaries over the last few months, and it's amazing how people get bogged down in all of the details and the military strategies and exactly what happened to the walls. And the archaeological issues are interesting because there's been a lot of things to prove with real evidence that this story actually happened. All of that stuff is fascinating, but let me tell you something. This story does not exist for our fascination. I need to remind you as I continue to do that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and Romans 15, 4 tell us that these Old Testament stories are here for our instruction and our encouragement and our example. That Joshua 6 is here for our instruction. It's here for our encouragement. So the question is, what kind of encouragement do we get from Joshua chapter 6? I think the answer to that is found in, in Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews 11 very quickly. I want to read a couple of verses in verses 29 through 31 in Hebrews 11. As we're trying to say, Lord, what is it? What do you want us to learn from this story? What is the the practical example here and the instruction for us? Hebrews 11, starting in verse 29, says this. Hebrews 11, 29. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith is the issue. The people of God won this victory and Rahab was saved the exact same way. They both chose to walk by faith in what God had said. They both chose to align themselves with the Lord and believe that the Lord's way, even though it seems strange at times, is always the right way. The issue that we are to learn, according to Hebrews 11, from this story is that this is a story calling us to greater faith. And the truth is, listen carefully, all of this, and we've talked about this, is a picture of our life with Jesus Christ. That God has rescued us. He has brought us over the Jordan so that we might inherit the promised land. And someday God will take us to heaven where we will finally find rest, fullness of rest. It is there that we will come to experience life as God intended it. But from this moment in which we are saved all the way into our journey to life and rest, that journey, listen, in which God guarantees we will make it, that he will glorify those he justifies, that he will complete the work he started. Listen to me. From this moment you get saved to this moment you go to glory is a life that is filled with war. It is a life that is filled with battles. That every single moment of our journey with Christ is a battle. There is a constant war for your allegiance, for your affection, for your attention. And Ephesians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Peter 5. Chapter 5, verse 8 are all telling us that there is an enemy that is unrelenting and coming after you moment after moment after moment. He wants nothing more than to take you down. And there is this very real spiritual battle that is being waged against every believer every moment of the day. This life is a life in which we battle. And Joshua 6 is a picture of this life. It is a picture of what life is like walking with Jesus as we fight these battles from the moment we get saved to the moment we die. And the lesson that we find in Joshua 6 is this. Our life is filled with battles that must be fought by faith. Get that down. Our life is filled with battles that must be fought by faith. If you would say in one sentence, what is the point of Joshua 6? For us, it is this. 
Our life is filled with battles that must be fought by faith. Let me give you two specifics on that, on the way in which we fight these battles by faith. Please write this down. The first one is this. You fight by faith in God's promises. Write that down. You fight by faith in God's promises. All of life is a battle. This is all warfare. Whether you realize it or not, there's a massive battle being raged to steal away your joy and your affections and your hope to do anything the enemy can do to stop your progress and rob you of what is rightfully yours. All of your peace and joy and all the experience of God's grace and mercy. And we fight by faith in God's promises. I love that the first thing the Lord says before they go to this battle is this. See, I have given this into your hands. And he begins with a statement of victory. What he's saying is this. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. The victory is already yours. That the battle has already been won. In the mind of God, this is as good as done. God is telling them that this is past tense. It's a done deal. The land is theirs. He promised it to them before. Now listen to this. You need to know how this works. That didn't mean they were going to walk by faith. Remember the previous generation, the Lord said the exact same thing. This land is yours. I've given it to your hand. Go take it. They sent 12 spies to spy out the land. Ten of those spies came back and said the people are too big. The fortresses are too large. There's no way we can take it. There's only two men, this is Numbers 13 and 14, Joshua and Caleb, who believed they could do it. So listen, it had already been promised them, God was going to give it, but because of their failure to walk by faith and believe in the promises of God, they did not receive what God had already won for them. It was theirs for the taking, but they did not get it because they failed to walk by faith. There's a new generation who who rises up and they want to walk by faith. And so what do they do? They believe that even though the walls are too high and the walls are too deep and the people are too strong and it doesn't make sense how this wandering desert nomad people could take the city of Jericho. They simply believe that if God said it, it was true. Even if it didn't make sense, they walk by faith, holding on to the promises of God. And at the end of the story, they got what God promised because they walked by faith and believed his word. Listen to me. It is the exact same with us. Every battle we fight, we fight by believing in the promises of God, by believing what God said about us is in fact true. I need you to turn to one more passage with me this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I wanna show you how this works out in an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're not in two services yet, which means I can go a little longer. I've got some good stuff to say. I think God wants to deliver some people this morning from some stuff, so just hold on for a few minutes. I'm about to talk about generational curses and demonic strongholds. You ready for this? 2 Corinthians 10. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. It is assumed there is a war, and it is a spiritual war. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, I believe... I really believe that when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 10, and I believe, I could tell you a lot of reasons I believe this, I won't get into all of that, because of the words he used that he's looking back to Joshua chapter six. There's just too many similarities in the word picture that he's using. A stronghold is a fortress. It's like the walls of Jericho. And a stronghold is really a fortress that is made up of lies that you've believed that are contrary to the word of God. 
That's what a stronghold is. You say, what is a demonic stronghold? It is a lie that you've believed that is contrary to the promises of God. You say, well, how do we know that? Because of the next verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He says that strongholds are opinions, their knowledge, their thoughts that go against the commands of Christ. That's what a stronghold is. A stronghold, listen to me, is some lie or some thought pattern or some feeling or desire or fear that you have believed and you've believed it for so long, it's ended up putting a fortress around your life and your mind and your heart. So that which is a lie, you now believe to be the truth. And this is Satan's primary weapon. He's a liar. And what he does in your life is he consistently speaks lie after lie after lie, all of these lies contrary to the word of God, so that he hopes he might put a stronghold in your life, so now you are bound by some lie instead of believing the truth of God's word. These lies steal your joy. They steal your progress. They keep you from walking in all that is yours in Christ Jesus. And normally, here's the sad part, normally we just live with them. We don't do anything about them. We just believe the lies. We let the enemy use those lies to take us down instead of fighting them. And this, listen, this is what a generational curse is. My discipleship group this year has spent a lot of time thinking about generational curses because it comes up a lot in the Old Testament. Let me tell you what I believe a generational curse is. It's not some unbreakable curse that is passed on from this person to this person and you can't break it. That's not the issue. It's this. Listen. Your parents, because they were sinful, just like you are, had some strongholds in their life. They had lies that they believed. They had habits that they never dealt with. They had insecurities. They had anger issues. They had money issues, whatever it is. And if they didn't deal with that, you know who ended up with it? You ended up with it. Not because it's something unbreakable. It's because you grew up in a family that had it and you ended up getting the same thing. So what one generation doesn't deal with goes to the next generation and all of a sudden you're just bound by anger and anxiety and lust and poverty and all of these thoughts. Why? Because that's what was implanted in you as a child. So, so if you don't deal with it, you know who gets it then? The next generation. These generational curses are lies that you have believed or sins that have not been dealt with that have put some wall around you and the next generation gets it. If one generation doesn't just decide that by the power of the God, they're gonna say no to that and deal with it. That's what it is. He's saying we have these strongholds and how do you take down these strongholds? How do you go after these lies? Why do you think that just because your mama struggled with that, you have to struggle with that? That's a lie from the devil. I don't care how angry your father got. I don't care how worried your mother was. I don't care any of that stuff. If you have Jesus Christ, you can break that and you break it by faith in the promises of God. You remind yourself of who you are and what God says is true and you don't have to be something your mom was. You can be delivered from that. That's the whole point of this is that we've got these fortresses and God wants us to take them down. You don't have to live with fear or insecurity or defeat or lust or anger or guilt or shame. But if you're going to win over it, you must fight with the promises of God. You know, one thing I love, I mentioned this to somebody this morning. 
I think there's real symbolism in this marching seven times. Because here's what I think. You know what we want? We love one-time deliverance. We want to go someplace and we want to just get all of our strongholds in one moment taken care of. I just, I need to go and get deliverance ministry and at one point it's all going to be done. It just doesn't normally work that way. I'm not saying that's not possible. It just doesn't work that way. You know how it usually works? Marching around seven times. It means you fight it today and you fight it tomorrow and you fight it the next day and you fight it the next day. I would love if right now everything I got and all of the junk I got, I pray a prayer of deliverance and it's all gone. I've just never experienced that. What I have experienced is victory after marching around it seven times and 70 times and 700 times. That's how it works. If you think you can march around your stronghold one time and it's gone, you've been fed another lie. The vast majority of times, this is how it happens. You say, I acknowledge it, I see it, I don't have to live with it. So I'm gonna take the word of God and speak against it every time that lie comes so that I can be delivered for it, not just for your sake, but for the sake of everyone who is around you. This stuff matters. And I assure you, if you don't deal with it, those coming after you are gonna get it. Saying, listen, I want you to fight by faith in God's promises. Can I just say one more thing? This moment right here, this moment is war. Do you know why? Because I'm using this to speak into your life and your mind to wage war against the lies that you believe. Every single time we gather in this place, this is war. Because I'm hoping that somehow by the power of God's word, you might see a lie that you believed and you might decide by faith to take it down this is war. Every time you get up in the morning and you read your Bible, it's war. You're waging war against the lies of the enemy every single time, and you've got to see it that way, and you've got to stop getting defeated over and over and over again. You don't have to live that way. But it is trusting in the promises of God. You use this to wage war against the lies that the enemy has gotten you to believe. I got one more. You fight by faith in God's promises. Here's the next one. You fight by faith in God's presence. Write that down. You fight by faith in God's presence. This is always the greatest promise of God. It is repeated over and over in chapter one. It is repeated again here in chapter six. And you say, where is it repeated in chapter six? It is repeated in the fact that 11 or 10 times in these verses, 10 times the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. I told you that this is not just about the omnipresence of God. This is about the manifest presence of God, the relational felt, the known presence in which God is moving. He is working. He is knocking down walls. He is defeating enemies. He's taking down strongholds. But I told you that the order must be important because four times the order of the procession is mentioned. And the reason the order is important is this, is because in the very center of this procession is the presence of the living God. Now look at Joshua 6, verse 11. I find this so incredible. Joshua 6, verse 11, it says this. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. You know, the secret to the battle that was going on was the ark of the Lord. It's the presence of God. He says the ark circled it every day. He's not mentioning the circling of the soldiers. It was the ark that was circling. This was a spiritual battle in which was being waged against the people who stood against the Lord. This was God's victory, it was not theirs. He is the one who won the battle. He's the one who is stronger. The reason I said that Joshua didn't fit the battle of Jericho is because God fit the battle of Jericho. This is the very presence of God waging war on Jericho and seeing the victory happen. Now let me tell you why his presence matters so much for you in your fight against these spiritual battles. The first one is this, is because you can't win without him. I'm reading a book right now 
and The Power of Self-Control. It's a spiritual book. It's a Christian book. But it takes all of these surveys from brain science and trying to help you understand how self-control works using Scripture. But I'm just reminded as I'm reading that book, self-control is impossible without the Spirit because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So those who decide, I don't want to be like my mom or I don't want to be like my daddy or I don't have to live that way. I don't want to have to keep believing this lie or living with this insecurity. If you just decide you're going to do better, you're never going to get it. Because this is a battle that is bigger than you. You're standing in front of a Jericho, which you cannot win on your own strength. And the reason most people keep losing is because they keep trying harder in their own strength. And God's plan is for you to fight like the Israelites did, listen, with God at the center of your life. He is the source of your strength, the source of your courage. So if you want to just not walk with God for six days, and then on day seven really hope you can fight that sin, it just doesn't work that way. You walk with God, you get him at the center of your life, realizing that you cannot win this without him. It also matters because all of these battles that we fight are spiritual battles. You see, here's where people get this text wrong. Listen carefully. They get this text wrong when they think, I'm facing cancer and I can take down cancer by the power of God if I walk with him. That's not what this is saying. I'm facing this jobless obstacle. I can take down that obstacle with the power of God. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this, is behind every earthly battle is a deeper spiritual battle. And what God wants you to focus on is the spiritual aspect of the battle because maybe he doesn't want to heal you from cancer, but maybe in the midst of that, he wants to give you something even greater. It's a spiritual battle. All of this is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, we do not war against flesh and blood. Our real battle is a spiritual battle. And because it's a spiritual battle, you cannot win it without spiritual weapons. One of those profound truths the Lord ever taught me. Listen carefully. This is so profound. Are you ready? One of the most profound truths the Lord ever taught me is that Ephesians 3.19 is before Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Did you get that? That'll blow your mind right there. Because we love 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we ever ask or imagine according to the power of work within us, to him be the glory in the church forever. I love that. I want, I want a God who is able. The problem is the verse before that is Paul praying that we might be filled with the fullness of God, showing us the connection. Your access to his power displayed in your life and in the church is your walking in the spirit of God. That's why I don't just want you to give money. I want you to pray. I want you to seek the Lord. I want you to get God in the center of your family and your relationships. I want him to get in the middle of your finances so that you might listen to what God wants you to do. Listen to this. When you get humble and you get desperate and you get on your knees, that's when God shows up. You know, one of the reasons, I'll be done here in just a second, one of the reasons that I, I love an invitation at a church and we do an invitation. Nobody's doing invitations anymore. The reason I do an invitation is because I believe that this is war. And I believe that what's happening in this moment is the very word of God is going into your heart. And it's stirring something in you. And God's revealing something. And you need to decide what you're going to do now. That you need to get on your knees now. Because you're not going to later. Because you think you are, but you're not. You're going to go to lunch. You're going to forget. And that conviction of the Holy Spirit is going to move. And the Bible says, do not harden your hearts. But when God speaks is the moment you respond. And the reason I don't like you standing up and walking around when I close in prayer for the invitation is because that's the moment. That is the moment in which we are waging war against all the stuff and asking people to respond to it. It's a holy moment and it matters. I'm just telling you, some of you just need to get humble before God. You need to get on your knees and say, God, I've been trying to do this long enough and I can't do it on my own strength anymore. So two responses. First of all, I want to say to unbelievers in the room, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, know this. God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. 
but his grace does not last forever. He's patient. His patience doesn't last forever. That there will be a time in which it's too late for you to respond to God, but this morning God has given you an opportunity to respond, so respond by faith. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Simply acknowledge your sin, receive Jesus Christ's death as the payment for your sin, and begin a new life of trusting and following him. And to believers, can I just remind you that the way you walk this journey is the same way you started this journey. You just keep trusting and following Jesus. You're trusting and following day by day. You take God's word, you walk in his presence, you wage war against everything the enemy is bringing against you, and your life will then end up being a testimony to the power of God, not because you, because of what he's able to do by his spirit. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.